the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. From your hearts, I want you to give him thanks. From your heart, I want you to lift thanksgiving to him. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, 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 Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you clap your hands and give praise to the Lord today? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. It is so good to be here this morning in this great service. And what a wonderful presence of the Lord is here already in this place today. I don't know about you, but I really don't feel like preaching right now. Now, that'll probably change in a few moments. I'll probably get to feeling like it here in a little bit. But right now, I just feel like I want a place to pray. What a wonderful message. What a tremendous word from God. I hope we did not casually, indifferently, nonchalantly receive what the Lord has just said. Where is the sacrifice? If there is a question that God is asking the apostolic movement in this hour we are living in, it would be that one. Where is the sacrifice? time some of us get radical about our our sacrifice to the Lord thank you so much brother Shatwell for a great message that was not just good preaching that was a message a great message from the Lord I don't want to lose it I don't want its effect to pass me by but I want it to leave a mark on me where is the sacrifice i want to go from this place hearing the voice of the lord where is the sacrifice and not only do i want to hear i want to appropriately respond how about you can you say amen amen Amen. this has just been so glorious already Uh, i knew that brother godair would preach well i've never heard him preach but what i was not just thrilled and excited and blessed and helped but uh, uh, I I have to admit I held back a little bit last night because I wasn't at home I guess unfamiliar familiar surroundings but if I would have been at home I would have been beating him on the back and screaming in his ear shouting right beside him my god what preaching we heard last I mean he was singing my song last night Thank God, thank God, thank God for anointed men of God that will bring us the anointed word of God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And it is just a thrill and a joy to be here in 
ARC Convention 1997, I so greatly appreciate the invitation to participate as a speaker. I feel honored uh, and I express my appreciation publicly to these brethren today for their invitation to come and to speak in this conference. Uh, I do want you to know, however, that my wife and I had already blocked off the week. Uh, we are involved in other conferences and uh, throughout the year, but we had made up our mind we need a conference to come to for ourselves. We need a conference to come to to get preached to and not have to worry about uh, its operation and worry about being involved in it. And we, in the beginning of the year, uh, had set up our calendar even previous to that, well before that, and had blocked off the dates on the calendar. And it was my intention to sit there and to shout and receive and worship and pray and go home renewed and ready to uh, do more for God. And then Brother Howard talked to me. So uh, my role has changed, but I'd have been here anyway. I'm just glad to be here today. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad to see all of you great, wonderful brethren that I know and many of you that I haven't yet met and all the saints of God. I just believe that we're going to sit together in heavenly places. We already have, but I believe God's got more for us. One translation said, we are made to sit together in heaven-like places. In other words, if you want to know what heaven's going to be like, it's going to be like this, only it will never end, and we won't have to contend with the flesh getting tired and weary, and, and we won't have the pressures of life and the cares of life and all the burdens that are waiting for us outside these doors. But uh, we're going to have a little bit of heaven in here. Praise God. Are you glad you're in heaven today or at least a heaven-like place? Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Is Brother Julio Hernandez in this service this morning? If you are, wave your hand at me, Brother Julio. I need to know if you're here. You are here. Como esta, hermano? Como esta? Okay. Amen. Brother Jeremiah Williams, are you here today? I don't know if I will or not, but I may need you, brethren, in a while, so hang loose. Praise God. Now, I think sometime, sometimes we expect certain preachers to preach in a certain way or on certain subjects. We identify them with themes and subjects and when they preach, that's what we expect from them. I'm not sure today that I'll be preaching like you expect me to preach, but I must do my best to follow what I feel God would have for us in this service today. I'm going to do my best. Amen. I'm not even sure you're going to like what I preach today. But I must do my best to do what I feel like God would have me to do today. Would you open your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. 
and I am going to read only one verse of Scripture. Many of you would not even have to open your Bibles. You could recite this verse by memory, Luke 2 and 11. Luke 2 and 11. Before I do that, I just, I'd like to see somebody smile. Somebody smile and shake somebody's hand and say, I'm happy in Jesus or something, you know. I can see a little different expression on some of y'all's faces. You, as sober as you are right now, you're a little intimidating. Praise God. Luke 2 and 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Everybody say a Savior. Savior. Everybody say a Savior. I'm going to do my best today to speak to you on this subject, four views of the cross. Four views of the cross. Now, automatically, when we announce we're going to preach about Calvary, the cross, some of you shift down a couple of gears. But uh, let's just uh, stay open to God and see what he will do here in the next little while. Four views of the cross. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to thank you today so much for your goodness and your mercies to me. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that somehow you've granted me favor and blessing. I do not understand, God, your kindness towards me. But I want to thank you again today for health and strength and breath. I want to thank you for salvation and the opportunity to be a part of your cause. I pray, dear Lord Jesus, as we endeavor to go about the ministering of your word today, that the anointing, the holy anointing of your spirit would rest upon us. I pray, O oh God, that the anointing of your spirit would rest on this congregation, Lord, to receive, that somehow, God, this would be a profitable time. Let it be, O oh God, that this time here would be time well spent, time, God, that would cause your kingdom to move ahead and go forward and your cause to be promoted. And that is our only interest. We ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody shout hallelujah. hallelujah. Come on, let's shout hallelujah. hallelujah. Let's fill this room with a shout. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One more time, please. Amen. Lift your hands and give him praise. Hallelujah, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. You may be seated. The angels proclaiming to the shepherds in the field 
did not announce the coming of Jesus Christ to this world as a healer. They did not say, born in the city of David, today is a healer. And yet, this morning, I want you to know that I believe he is a healer. Not only do I believe, I know for a fact that he is a healer. The angels did not announce in the fields that day to the shepherds that born in the city of David was a miracle worker. But I am here to tell you I believe he is a miracle worker. They did not say born in the city of David today is a counselor, nor the prince of peace nor any other titles or offices or descriptive words concerning the works of our God as he came in the flesh. But rather they announced to the shepherds in the field that day, born in the city of David is a Savior. A Savior. I believe that in so doing they announced and proclaimed the greatest of all roles Jesus Christ was to fill in his coming to this world. I am thankful he is a healer. I am thankful that he is a miracle worker. I am thankful that he is the counselor and the prince of peace. And he is all that he is. But my heart is made glad today because I can proclaim with a certainty that Jesus is a Savior. Born in Bethlehem's manger was a Savior. And somebody ought to be shouting happy today that he saved you from your sin. Hallelujah. I like the chorus that says he saved me from a burning hell. Yes, he did. Somebody say, yes, he did. I was lost and destined to an eternity separated from God. But Jesus Christ, by his miraculous provision, has saved me. And I'm here this morning, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, sanctified by his spirit, on my way to heaven. Thank God he is a savior. Don't turn these back anymore. Turn them back up where you had them on these monitors. Praise God. And, and somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Praise God. It was a momentous day, the day that Jesus died on Calvary's cross. As a matter of fact, I think that we can probably say it was the most momentous day this world has ever seen or known. There has never been, was never before a day like that day. And there has never been since then a day like the day that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. Theologians, and I think they accurately tell us, they tell us that it is the center of all eternity. Everything that happened previous to Calvary depended upon the fact that one day Jesus would die on Calvary's cross. 
everything in the program of God, everything in the economy of God previous to the cross depended on the fact that one day God would enrobe himself in flesh live 33 and a half sinless years and then die on Calvary's cross. Everything since that time has depended upon the fact that there was a Calvary and that Jesus did die on Calvary's cross. Everything that we have, everything that we have experienced Everything that we can hope for is dependent upon the fact that Jesus died on Calvary's cross. I'm glad that it's not just a myth, as some would tell us. It's not just a fairy tale concocted in the mind of some man. I'm glad that it is a fact. It is a reality. Jesus did come. Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger. Jesus did live a life without sin. He did qualify himself to be the sacrifice for the sins of every man. And Jesus did die on Calvary's cross for your sins and for mine. It was and is the most momentous day that this world has ever seen. It was, however, a day of tumult and a day of confusion. There were many people that were present at the scene of the death of Jesus Christ who witnessed his death, either closely or from afar off. Some of them saw it just in passing. Some of them saw every detail of his death. They saw his dying and his death from many different perspectives. Many people saw the death of Jesus Christ in a different light. There were some who were there that day who were simply caught up in the spirit of mass rioting. They really didn't recognize Jesus as anybody. They really didn't care what he had done or what the accusations were. To him, he was nobody. And when the angry mob cried out to crucify him, they really didn't care who he was or what he was supposed to have done. He was a nobody to them. They were simply caught up in the spirit of mass rioting. There were others who were there who had witnessed other crucifixions. They were not unfamiliar with the death by crucifixion. And they realized that this was something uh, that was reserved for the most despised criminal. And to them on the day he died, Jesus was just another wicked man. He was another man who deserved to die. He was just another criminal, another person who had committed a crime worthy of death. They didn't really know who he was, but to them he was just another criminal. And yet there were others who stood there that day who had been a little bit more acquainted with the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
They had never really cast their lot with him. They had never made commitments to him. But they realized he was a good man. They had stood there in the multitudes when he had spoken kind words, when he had performed good deeds, when he had done things that people needed done in their lives. Some of them had witnessed miracles and had even themselves been beneficiaries of the Lord's goodness. And they recognized him as a good man. They saw him as a good man. I am quite certain they were careful not to lift their voice against those who were in charge, against the authorities who had pronounced the sentence of death upon Jesus. They, in their heart, did not agree he was a good man. To some, he was a nobody. To some, he was another criminal. To others, he was a good man, but they kept it to himself. There were others there who felt a little more strongly about Jesus Christ. They had heard things that he had spoken. They had heard the manner in which he had spoken them. They had felt the impact of his ministry. And they were convinced that he was more than just a good man. That he was no doubt a prophet sent from God. In their minds, he was right along with John the Baptist and Elijah and Elisha and other great men of the past. They honored him and revered him as a prophet. And yet they sealed their lips and would not speak out in his favor for fear that the anger which was directed towards Jesus Christ would be turned towards them. They saw him as a prophet. Some saw him as nobody. Some saw him as just another criminal. Some looked at him as a good man. Some saw him as a prophet. And then there were the disciples of the Lord who stood afar off. They had been convinced at some point in their life that Jesus was more than a good man. They had become convinced that he was more than just a prophet. They had to be convinced at some point in his ministry that he was the Christ and he was the Messiah. But now, because of fear, they stand from afar off. They will not get close to the bloody cross. They look at him from a distance with question marks in their minds. They are now in a state of confusion. If he really was the Messiah, how could he be dying on the cross? If he really has come to set up his kingdom in this world, is he really who we thought he was? And they saw him from a vantage point of confusion. And then to the core of the angry crowd that day, Jesus was an imposter. They hated him. They despised him. Some of them were sincere in their hearts. They were like the apostle Paul was before his conversion. They thought they were doing a righteous work when they hung Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. They looked at him with anger as an imposter, a man who claimed right that only God had, 
a man who claimed he could forgive sins, a man who made himself equal with God. They despised him. They hated him. Their hearts were filled with anger, and they thought, surely he is worthy of death. And so, there were many different perspectives of Jesus on the day he died. I would, however, today for just a while like to focus in on four special people. These people were not a part of the angry crowd. They were not a part of the disciples who stood from afar off. But they were close enough to witness the death of Jesus in every gruesome detail. They saw every drop of blood that fell. They witnessed every expression of agony on his face. They were close enough to hear the moan and the groan that emanated from his bruised and beaten body. They were first-hand witnesses of the death of Jesus Christ. And each of them saw Jesus from a different perspective on that day that he died. The first was Mary, the mother of Jesus. When Mary looked into the face of Jesus Christ on that day, when she looked into his pain, uh, when she looked upon his agony, she saw him like nobody else there that day could have possibly seen him. No doubt many memories were coursing through her mind, her heart, and her spirit. She remembered that night in Bethlehem when she and Joseph could not find a room. She remembered them ending up in the place where the animals slept. She remembered the first contractions. She remembered the pain and the agony of birth. When she looked up at yonder cross, she saw Jesus like nobody else could have possibly seen him. She remembered his first cry. She remembered what it was like to hold him in her arms for the first time. She remembered what it felt like to look down into the face of that newborn baby with only the pride that a mother can have. She understood that. She remembered the first steps that he had taken, the first words that he had spoken. She remembered as he grew in stature and in wisdom. She saw him like nobody else could have seen him. When she looked up in the yonder cross, she remembered the beginnings of his ministry. She remembered the days she didn't understand him. She remembered the times she was proud of him. But when Mary, the mother of Jesus, looked into the face of Jesus, she saw him in a light no one else that day, nor since, nor before, could have seen him in. She saw him as a son. I'm not ashamed to preach to you on this morning that I'm glad Jesus Christ came as a son. I said I'm thankful for his sonship. 
I said, you're looking at one person that's thankful for his sonship. The Lord I worship in this place today uh, is not just one who sits on some far removed uh, ivory throne uh, unable to identify with who I am and where I am and what's going on in my life. Uh, But I'm preaching to you about a Jesus uh, who is touched with the feeling uh, of our infirmities. Uh, I'm preaching to you about a Jesus uh, who understands what it is uh, to be tempted in all points. I am thankful he was born in Bethlehem's manger. I am thankful he became a son. I thank him for his sonship today. Would you clap your hands and praise him for it this morning? I tell you, he knows what your loneliness is all about. He knows what your suffering's all about. He identifies with your pain. President Clinton says, I feel your pain, but we're worshiping a Lord today who really does identify with the suffering and the hurting of humanity. Thank God for his sonship. Amen. She saw him as a son. And then the scripture lets us to know that one of those who did not allow fear to isolate them and alienate them from the place of Jesus' death was a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Mary Magdalene, but we do know this about her. When Jesus found her, she was possessed of at least seven devils. Can you imagine what a mess her life must have been? I tell you today that the devil will make a mess out of your life. Did you hear me? The devil is nobody's friend. The devil is nobody's buddy. He makes you all kind of promises, but when he gets finished with you, your life is going to be ravaged. Everything that was valuable and worthwhile will have been stripped from you. The devil is nobody's friend. And when Jesus found Mary Magdalene, her life was ravaged by the demons that inhabited her being. I don't know where she was born. I don't know who her parents were. I think that probably it was as it is in most cases. She just started running with the wrong crowd. She got under the wrong influences. She didn't intend to end up in the trouble she ended up in. She didn't plan on going where she thought she was going. And this is not a part of my message really, but I feel like I'm talking to somebody right now. I feel like I'm preaching to a young person in this building. You don't really plan on going where you're headed. You don't think it's going to end up the way it's going to end up. But you hear me if you don't hear anything else today. The devil is nobody's friend. By the time Jesus found Mary Magdalene, the Bible doesn't even describe the day, the scene, the setting, the surroundings. But by the time Jesus stepped into her life, Her life was torn and ravaged by sin. 
What a hopeless life she had. She didn't even want to be the person she was. She didn't even want to do the things that she was doing. But the evil, vile forces that inhabited her drove her on to commit wicked deeds she didn't even want to do. But oh, what a glorious day it was when Jesus stepped into the scene of her life and he spoke the word. That's the way Jesus did it. You don't find Jesus wrestling around with devils. I said you don't find Jesus having wrestling matches in church with the devil. Well, that didn't get too many people excited. That flies in the face of some of our favorite Pentecostal tradition. We, we like to give the devil center stage when he pops his head up. And we'll, we'll put a whole church service on hold and let 50 sinners sit out there and watch the, watch the show while we wrestle around with the devil and he foams at the mouth. And... I got to go and preach this now. Jesus just spoke the word. And seven demons that had lived inside of her came out and he set her free. And from that day to the day she died, Mary Magdalene's life was never the same. And she became one of the most loyal and faithful of all the disciples of Jesus Christ. When she stood there at the foot of the cross and looked up into the suffering Savior's face, she didn't seem the way Mary saw him, but she saw a deliverer. There is my deliverer. My life was hopeless. It was out of control. It was driven by demonic forces. I couldn't change it. I couldn't turn it around. I couldn't do anything myself. But one day Jesus stepped on the scene in my life and he spoke the word and the chains fell off and the shackles were broken. He is my deliverer. Somebody ought to be shouting in these aisles today because Jesus Christ delivered some of you. Some of you have had the chains fall off. Some of you have had the shackles broken. Some of you have been set free from the demonic power. Some of you know what it is to have your life out of control and you couldn't get it back in control. You couldn't help yourself. But one day Jesus came on the scene and he delivered you from your cigarettes and from your drugs and from your alcohol and from your line, from the spirit of deceit, from immorality. And here you are in the house of God this morning. Somebody ought to be shouting because Jesus is a deliverer. Shake somebody's hand and say, I'm so glad he's a deliverer. Yes. 
Thank somebody else's hand and say, I'm so glad he's a deliverer. Don't give them that little old Pentecostal limp wristed handshake. Grab their hand and look them in the eye and say, I was bound, but Jesus set me free. Thank God he's a deliverer. Is that gentleman here, Brother Howard, pointed me out to me last night, an Indian witch doctor, ex-Indian witch doctor. There he is. Stand up here, right, right up here, just a moment. He's never stood in front of these this many people before in his life. Hey, Amen. I don't know what kind of chance he used to offer up. I don't know what kind of prayers he used to pray. But I can guarantee you he was under the influence of the powers of darkness. But one day, just a little while ago, a week ago, two weeks ago, Jesus Christ spoke the word and demonic powers had to flee. And he is a blood-washed, Holy Ghost-filled child of God. Thank God, Jesus is a deliverer. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank God he's a deliverer. Oh, God. You can be seated. The third person I want you to note this morning who was there in the proximity of the death of Jesus Christ was a man. Thank God it bothers me that there always seems to be more women at the foot of the cross than men. The men were afraid standing watching from afar off. Thanks be to God there was one man that loved him enough to say, if I got to die with him, I'll just die with him. John, the beloved, was at the foot of the cross on the day Jesus died. He didn't see Jesus the way Mary, his mother, saw him as a son. I don't think that his primary focus was that Jesus was a deliverer. But he saw Jesus in a very special way on that day also. When John looked up into the face of Jesus, he saw his friend. That's my friend. I don't think that's special to a lot of you because you don't understand what it means for Jesus to be your friend. In fact, there's not too many people in the Bible that are described that way. Maybe you could describe Enoch that way. He and God had some very intimate times together. 
Abraham was called the friend of God. And obviously John was Jesus' friend. John was there close to Jesus in a way that none other were. He and Jesus shared intimacies. They talked on a level that only friends talk. They, they shared things that only friends share. And he was the one that was there that last supper. Close enough to Jesus, closer than any of the others. When they lay on the floor at the table, where he could just lean his head back and look up into the face of Jesus and carry on conversation with the Lord that others could not even hear. That's how close Jesus was to John and John was to Jesus. Peter was jealous of the relationship or the friendship between Jesus and John. Because of that special friendship, Jesus spared John of the cruel and wicked and vile deaths that the other original 12 died. All of the other 12 died cruel deaths. And yet Jesus, by way of a promise, before he ever was crucified, spared John from such a death. That's why they couldn't boil John in hot oil. That's why they couldn't kill him like they killed the other apostles. Jesus had sealed it with a promise. You're not going to die like the rest of them. And when Peter heard that, he got jealous over it. He was jealous over the friendship that existed between Jesus and John. Jesus exhibited the ultimate act of friendship as he hung on the cross. And he looked down from that place of suffering and committed the care of his own mother into the hands of his friend John. Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He committed the care of the one he loved in this world, no doubt the most, into the care of his closest friend. John was his friend. Oh, friend today, if I can help you to understand what a precious thing it is to have friendship with Jesus. I'm so glad that not only is he, uh, is he a son, and not only was he a deliverer, but I am so glad today uh, he can be and will be our friend. I said he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Has anybody here today found out that he's a friend that'll walk with you through the darkest valley? Has anybody found out he's a friend that won't forsake you when others do? Has anybody found out that when your heart hurts and your soul aches, that Jesus is a constant abiding companion? He'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Has anybody learned that he's there with you in the darkest night and in the deepest valley? Thank God that he has become our friend. And let's lift our hands and thank him for his friendship. Thank him for his friendship.
I'm taking too long to get where I'm going. So hang on, we may shift up to another speed here. But the fourth person I want to talk about saw Jesus in the highest and the most ideal of all of his works. He saw Jesus in his most significant role. He was not at the foot of the cross, but he hung on a cross. One of the thieves that hung on the cross did not recognize Jesus for what he was.
but in some ray of revelation the one thief saw him in the most significant role that he ever filled he saw him as a savior I'm glad he was a son because he can be touched with the feeling of my infirmities. I'm glad he's a deliverer or many of us would not even be in this place today. I'm so thankful for his friendship. There have been times in my life when that's all I had. But I want to tell you what I'm really thankful for today. And that is that Jesus was a Savior. When the thief looked over yonder, he realized no man could save him. When he looked over at Jesus, he realized that he could not save himself. When he looked over at Jesus, he realized no one else was going to intervene. But with some ray of revelation, some illumination came to his heart and spirit. And he understood, yonder there is my Savior. He can save me. Maybe not from this death. Maybe not from what I'm suffering right now. But he can save me from eternal separation. He can save me from the eternal consequence of sin. He is a Savior. I've got to get his attention. I've got to get his help. I've got to get his intervention because he's the only one that can save me. If you're thankful Jesus is a Savior, I want you to clap your hands and give praise to the Lord. Some of you sit there like you were blood washed from your birth. Some of you act like you always had a ticket to heaven. Some of you act like you never were in a bar and never were a drugged out drug addict. You wouldn't praise Jesus for being your Savior because you think it's your own good works that are saving you. I'm telling you, you ought to be shouting happy today. You ought to be rejoicing when a preacher talks about your Savior. I said you were lost and hopeless if he hadn't saved you from your sin. I don't care how long you've been in an apostolic church. I don't care how long it's been since you smoked a cigarette. I don't care how long it's been since you visited a bar. I'm telling you, if you've never done those things, you were on your way to a hell and eternal separation from God. But the good God of heaven took on the robe of flesh, came to this world, conquered sin every day of his life, qualified himself to be your sacrifice and take your sin submitted himself surrendered himself to the death of the cross and became your savior tell somebody I'm so glad he's my savior greatest thing you ever was or ever has been as a savior you get people out to come watch him heal 
announce a healing crusade, you couldn't get everybody in here. Because they want to come see Jesus heal. If you said Jesus was going to turn water into wine tonight, we'd have to somehow get a bigger arena. But apostolics sometimes have watched the saving work of Jesus Christ in people's lives so many times they don't even get excited about it. I'm telling you the miracle of miracles is when Jesus saves a lost soul. It's greater than the parting of the Red Sea. It's greater than the quail coming on the wings of the wind. It's greater than turning the bitter water into sweet water. It's greater than turning water into wine. It's greater than breaking the bread and feeding the multitudes. I preach to you the miracle of miracles is when Jesus saves a lost soul. Live for getting a new home if you want to. Live for building a bigger bank account if you want to. Live for your vacation time if you want to. Live for your fishing pond or your golf course if you want to. You're looking at one person that's living for just another chance to see Jesus do it in somebody else's life. I want to see him save somebody else. What time do I need to Praise God, you can be seated. Let me quickly share with you the scene of Revelation 4 and 5, just quickly. I know there's so many things in the 4th and 5th chapter of Revelation that are debatable, questionable, different ones where you have different ideas about, and, and those things don't even matter. But let me show you something in the 4th and the 5th chapter of the book of Revelation that is for certain. Amen. In that fourth chapter, John is invited by the Spirit to come up a little higher. Believe that to be whatever you want to believe it. But he is invited by the Spirit to come up a little higher. And when he does, there is a scene unfolded to him in the heavens. And John sees the throne of God. And he sees one that sits on the throne. Can you say amen? How many? One that sits on the throne. But there's some other things there he sees. He sees 24 elders. Now you can interpret that to be whatever you want it to be. Many of us believe that it is representative of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 foundation uh, apostles of the Lamb. Uh, it's Old Testament, New Testament. Some of us believe that. Believe whatever you want to believe. But there's twelve, there's 24 elders that are around that throne scene in the fourth and the fifth chapters of the book of Revelation. And then the Bible tells us that there are four beasts that are around the throne. There's one that is as a lion. There's one that is as an ox. There is one that is as a man. There's one that is as an eagle. Let me tell you today, the lion is representative of kingship, always in the scripture. The ox is representative of servitude, always in the scripture. Man, of course, represents humanity, always in the scripture. An eagle is representative of deity or God. 
And so we find four symbols. The symbol of the king. The symbol of the servant. The symbol of the man. And the symbol of God. I don't think it is accidents or pure coincidence that these are in the precise order. The offices in which each of the four gospel writers wrote about Jesus Christ. Matthew wrote about Jesus as a king. Mark wrote about him as a servant. Luke wrote about him as a man. And John portrayed him to us to be God. God in the flesh. I feel like that those four symbols seal up the four offices of Jesus Christ in the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you think the Bible was accidentally preserved for us and the canon of the scripture came to us as it is accidentally, you just need to study the Bible a little more. The more you study it, the more convinced you'll believe in the miracle of the Bible. Hallelujah. I believe that those four offices of Jesus Christ, him as a king, he as a servant, he as a man, and he as God are around the throne with the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. And yet there is a book that needs to be opened and none of the 12 Old Testament saints or representatives can open the book and none of the New Testament representatives can open the book. Jesus, even in the office of a man can't open the book. Jesus in his office, even as a servant, can't open the book. Jesus in his office as a king can't even open the book. None of the offices, none of the offices of Jesus Christ symbolized in the fourth and the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation are worthy to open the book. But suddenly on the scene comes another one. And this one is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And you want to know what every other office of Jesus Christ does? It bows down and pays ominous and gives worship unto the office of the Savior. I'm telling you there's nothing Jesus ever did. There's nothing Jesus ever did. There's no role he ever filled. There's no work he ever accomplished. That's as wonderful and glorious and beautiful and powerful and significant as he being a savior. How many believe is a savior? How many really believe he's a savior? I wish I could preach hard enough, fast enough, anointed enough to convince you of the obsession our Lord had with being a savior. Be seated, please. I said it was an obsession with the Lord. The Lord God was obsessed with becoming a savior of man. I don't understand that. Let me say the word again because I want it to get in your mind. He was obsessed with it. He was obsessed. All that he was and all that he could do did not satisfy him. He had to become a savior. Nothing could get in his way. He would allow nothing to stop him. He had to be a savior. He might could have done without the office of the healer, the counselor, the mighty God, 
Well, he was that, but some of the things that he became. He could have possibly carried on his program and forfeited them. But he could not, would not even consider the possibility of forsaking his role as a savior. He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I really don't understand that. When I look at some of you, I can't understand why you were so important to the God who made the heavens and the earth. That he just had to be a savior for you. When I look in the mirror in the morning, I for sure can understand why he would not let anything in the visible or invisible hinder him. He would proceed with his plan until it was accomplished. He would become my savior. He was obsessed with it. Did you hear me? I'm going to preach this a few minutes here longer. And you may not like it. Not only was he obsessed with it from the foundation of the world, when he came into this world, he wouldn't let anything stop him. The devil tried to stop him at the onset of his ministry, led him into the wilderness, did his very best to sidetrack Jesus, get him off the course of becoming the savior for the souls of a lost world. But Jesus refused to be distracted by the devil himself. Till finally he had enough. And he said, get thee hence, Satan. Get out of my way. You and 10,000 more like you are not going to stop me. I am going to become a savior for lost humanity. They're the apple of my eye. They're the choice of my creation. I love them above and beyond all the rest that I have made. I'm going to save them from their sin. And you're not going to stop me. Amen. Not only did the devil try to stop him, his own family tried to stop him. But Jesus was obsessed. Everybody say obsessed. Was saving lost souls. Shake somebody's hand and say Jesus was obsessed. Was saving the lost. It wasn't even a balanced thing. He was obsessed with it. He wasn't even a normal human being. He was so obsessed with reaching the lost. Oh my God, I feel like preaching now. I said he didn't even live a normal life, Brother Shatwell, because he was obsessed with becoming a savior. He was so obsessed with saving the lost, he wouldn't have a house. He didn't take vacations like some people did. At least he'd do his go aside for a few hours and rest. You said that's not healthy. That's how Jesus lived. Because he was obsessed with saving the lost. One time he got so involved in laying the foundation for his work and doing what he had come to do that the multitude surrounded him. And the Bible said 
for so much that he could not even eat. If you'll study that, you'll discover that he didn't even take time to eat. He didn't even break for lunch. He was obsessed. I feel like kicking some of your chairs over this morning. Some of you long-time comfortable Pentecostals that haven't won a soul for the last 25 years. Somebody would do a favor for you to kick your chair over and say it's not all right. It's not all right. It's not good enough for you to talk in tongues and run the aisles and pay your tithes. You need the obsession of Jesus Christ. You need to get obsessed with what Jesus was obsessed with. He came to be a savior, not to tickle your insides on Sunday night. Not just to make your feet feel light when the music gets going. He came to save men from the awful pride of sin. And he was obsessed with it. You can be seated. His mother and his brother came looking for him. They said, we got to do something for him. He is beside himself. He's gone crazy. When's the last time somebody accused you of that for the sake of souls? Some of you get accused of it every day, but I mean for the sake of souls. They said, this man's gone crazy. He's beside himself. You know what I'm trying to do in Modesto? I'm trying to cultivate a whole bunch of crazies. I'm trying to mess their minds up. I'm trying to get them to where all they think about is, who can I win to God next? Who can I witness to today? You say, well, we can't do it that way. Don't tell them in Modesto. I just about got them convinced to go crazy for the cause of souls. Where they live, eat, sleep, Breathe to just win one more to the kingdom. Yeah, there's not some of you shouting now. Can I ask you a question? If you have the spirit of Christ, if you claim the spirit of Christ, And his spirit is supposed to emanate its attributes through you. And he was obsessed for the cause of the lost. Why aren't you obsessed with the same thing? No, I'm not talking about going out an hour on Saturday morning. I'm talking about living, eating, breathing. The very reason for your existence. The reason you got up in the morning. The reason your heart beats. The reason you're moving in here and in this place. Is to try to reach somebody that's lost with this saving gospel. I'm talking about the real spirit of Christ.
Clap your hands to the Lord and praise him. He said it was his purpose, you can be seated, to come to seek and save. That's my purpose. That's my mission. And when he gave us the co-mission, we became co-missionaries with him. No more his mission than it is our mission. And yet, we spend more money on our houses and cars than we do on reaching the lost. Say, Brother Keys, there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, there is. I said that's not right. I said it's not right to put more on your bass boat than you gave the missions last year. You say, well, I'm just a good Christian. You are not a Christian. Being a Christian is being Christ-like. He gave it everything he got. Now we can try to sidestep that, talk around it, and use wisdom, quote-unquote wisdom, and balance, quote-unquote balance, and try to sidestep and get around it all we want to. But it's time some of us wake up and realize uh, this is everything to me. It's everything. It's my money. It's my time. It's my life. I breathe it. I eat it. I sleep it. I live for it. To see somebody say. We have so many, so many excuses. I'm sick of excuses. Most of them are lies from the devil and some of the lies we created ourselves. Lies such as nobody wants this gospel anymore. Lies such as nobody's hungry anymore. You said it right, Brother Shatwell. Jesus would not have prayed for the harvest. The harvest has always been right, but I'm telling you in my lifetime, I have never seen so many hungry people. I can't go anywhere without finding somebody that's hungry. You say, well, you're just going to unusual places. I'm going to the same places you go. They're hungry. They're everywhere. They surround you everywhere you go. You need to get that lie off of your back. You need to get rid of that self-justification and all the excuses you build up around yourself. I'm telling you, it's a hungry world out there. They want to know what it is to experience the liberty and the Holy Ghost that you know. All it is is excuses and self-justifications so we don't really have to become obsessed. We're obsessed with this world. We're obsessed with the cares of life. We're obsessed with our comforts and our luxuries. We're obsessed with our cars and our homes. We're obsessed with our careers and our education. We're obsessed with our fun and our, our hobbies. Amen. Let me just say it. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a golf club and hitting a golf ball. But oh my God, where do you preachers find the time when the world is lost and going to hell? Where do you find the time to set hour on in in a boat casting a fishing line out in the water. I don't think it's sin. Go ahead and do it if you feel like you want to do it. But I don't know where you find the time when this world is headed headlong into a devil's hell. And God was obsessed so 
But because of the lost, I took on the former man, lived a life of complete abandonment to the purpose of saving those that are lost. That's what it means to be Christ-like. I gotta quit. No, I'm serious. Brother Tommy Johnson is one of my favorite people and preachers, and I, I want to show him courtesy. A savior. A savior. He was obsessed with the work of saving the lost. I don't feel like we have any big churches in Pentecost. Brother, go there. I don't think we have any big churches in the apostolic movement. Not yet. We don't. Possibly in Ethiopia overseas, we have some that would compare to New Testament churches. But in North America, we don't have any big churches. And so I don't say anything. It is a very, very rare thing I make any kind of reference to our church or our work while I'm preaching anywhere else. But I feel a little bit compelled to today. Allow me just a little bit of liberty. I'm not saying this in boasting because I don't feel like we have a big church and I don't feel like we're getting anything done. I don't feel like we have scratched the surface. Do you understand? We haven't even begun to break through. But in the last five weeks, we've seen the excess of 350 people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. First thing you think is, my goodness, who's your evangelist? That's what you preachers are thinking. Well, we got one of the best, Brother Guy Godwin, Greg Godwin. Almost gave you the credit. You know why he's so good? He just stays out of the way most of the time, lets God do it. He knows when to get out of the way. Oh, I don't have time to get into that. You, you evangelists think you've got to preach your little one, two, three, four every time when there's a house full of sinners ready to get the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost is moving and falling. You need to come, Brother Godwin, and take some lessons. But it's not him and it's not me. Do you understand? I'm saying that sincerely. It's not me. 350. And I don't feel like we have scratched the surface. Before you get too lifted up, Brother Godwin, we weren't home last night. And my son-in-law priest. And he got 20 minutes into his message. And he had to stop because the old sinner boy came tumbling down the aisle. Said, I got to get saved. Brother Torres, assistant pastor, told me after church last night, I called. He said, he said, he said, I counted eight. He said, I don't know how many really got the Holy Ghost last night. Why is it happening? Because I've got a part of that congregation. I'm getting closer to getting all of them to going absolutely crazy about winning the lost. Just getting obsessed about it. I mean, they don't talk about anything else. You hear the ladies talking, they're not carrying on about the sale in the mall. 
The men aren't always talking about the latest truck that's out. They're not talking about who's going to win the NBA finals. I got a bunch of people. I'm getting closer to getting all of them. I'm going to keep feeding the fire. I'm going to keep throwing a log on the fire till I drive every one of them crazy. Till the whole city rises up and says those people are beside themselves. All they talk about is what Jesus will do. How Jesus can save your soul. That's all they're interested in. That's all they care about. I'm preaching to you. It's not going to just happen uh, with you twiddling your fingers and sitting around waiting for some sovereign move of the Holy Ghost. Somebody's going to have to get obsessed. Uh, Somebody's going to have to go crazy. Brother Jeremiah, come stand up here quickly. Brother Julio, come quickly. Brother Brian Jones, stand right over here. All three of you, right behind me. You can be seated. No, don't be seated. Get up. Clap your hands. I got to quit. Come on, shake about five people's hands and say, I'm getting ready to go crazy for the cause of the lost. I'm getting ready. You preachers say, I'm getting ready to go home and drive my people crazy about winning the lost. We try to temper everything we preach with wisdom so long, we don't have any Holy Ghost fanatics anymore. Got to use wisdom. Well, make sure it's godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom.